Coming up on Tech Nation, why is the EU imposing fines on digital giants such as Google, Amazon, and the rest? And what is happening with the EU's digital space since the Russian invasion of Ukraine? I speak with Margreta Vestager, the Executive Vice President of the European Commission for a Europe fit for the digital age. Then Professor David George Haskell talks about sound, from the beginning of time on planet Earth to the sounds of our teeming cities. His book is Sounds Wild and Broken, Sonic Marvels, Evolution's Creativity, and the Crisis of Sensory Extinction. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2013, I spoke with Poe Bronson about his book, Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing. Scholars, researchers are really interested in uh, measuring the telltale biomarkers of competition and performance. And uh, this technology has gotten sophisticated enough now that you can get a little saliva uh, and you can spit into a little tube or into a cup. But the easiest way to do it today is to use a salivette and you chew the salivette like a piece of chewing gum for 30 seconds and you spit it out. And the scholars will measure all sorts of biomarkers off just this little saliva test. It could be as simple as something that's looking for like alpha amylase, a broad marker for sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight response activity, or you can get really specific with it, you know, down to uh, minute changes in testosterone levels to uh, the whole neuroendocrine cascade that uh, works through your body. At the very beginning of the book, uh, there was a, a scholar out of Germany who did this in the wine country, and she convinced a whole bunch of people to go skydiving for the very first time. And they jumped out of a plane at 10,000 feet solo, you know, chewing a salivette to see exactly what was going on in their body <laughs> exactly moment that of moment. Terror Scaring them to death was exactly the point of I'd her swallow it. That's the problem. <laughs> but they, and, and yeah, and the, and the markers said these people are freaked out, right? But what was interesting is she made them do it uh, three times, sometimes three times over a couple days or, or, or even on the same day or even in a single hour. And what she found is that you acclimate to free-falling towards Earth at 120 miles an hour very quickly, that even your second jump, the stress level goes down by, by a third, and on your third jump, it's like driving in traffic, uh, that you acclimate to this very well. But meanwhile, there was this other scholar just a little north and he was studying ballroom dancing competitions. And he was having ball, amateur ballroom dancers who were there for the regional dance competition um, chew little salivettes. And no matter how much experience they'd had, whether they'd had one-year experience or five years or 10 years or 15 years, no matter what, their stress response was just as high as anybody else, pretty much close to, close to, but not quite, of a first parachute jump, which is interesting. So why can people acclimate to jumping out of an airplane at 10,000 feet, going 120 miles an hour towards Earth, but can't acclimate 
to the unique stress of competing, because it wasn't the dancing that was causing the stress. It was the being judged. It was the sense of winning and losing, the sense of having to avoid making a single mistake. And that is very interesting because we've heard for quite a while now that it takes 10 years of practice to become an expert, to become an authority in something, to be great at it. And we felt something was missing from that success formula. That's not wrong, just that there's an additive thing, which is that we're not judged on how we practice, we're judging how we actually perform when the band is playing, the lights are bright, and the music is going. And uh, what it turns out is that while we all have this enormous stress flood when we, when we have to compete, we interpret it differently. And our, people, our bodies do. Our bodies physiologically interpret it differently, but our minds interpret it differently. That if you ask uh, expert performers, uh, professional athletes or professional musicians and the like, they all get really anxious and stressed out before a big performance. But they see that as beneficial. To them, it excites them, it awakens them, it gets them ready. While uh, novice performers feel that same sensation but think it's damaging their performance. And learning to go from seeing stress as harmful to seeing stress as beneficial is crucial to sort of really learning to manifest competitive fire when you have to. This 2013 Tech Nation interview features Poe Bronson in his book, Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing. Today, Poe is Managing Director at IndieBio. His most recent book is Decoding the World, a roadmap for the questioner. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Margreta Vestager, the Executive Vice President of the European Commission for a Europe Fit for the Digital Age, about the EU's perspective of the societal responsibility of technology and the digital steps that the EU has taken since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Then Professor David George Haskell explores the world of sound, from the Earth's earliest beginnings to the Amazon jungle to the heart of New York City. We talk about his book, Sounds Wild and Broken. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global on the web at mindk.com. And now, Margreta Vestager. Well, Madam Executive Vice President, also known to many as Margreta, welcome to Tech Nation. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, and I feel at home already. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Now, you are an EU Commissioner and the Executive Vice President of the European Commission for a Europe fit for the digital age. And while Tech Nation is heard all over the world, many of our listeners are Americans, and they often hear about the European Union, but they're less clear about the European Commission. How does the European Commission relate to the EU? 
Well, we are one of the institutions. Uh, of course, there are many, but we have the right of initiative uh, to table proposals in front of the co-legislators of the parliament and the council of uh, member states. And then we are the executive. So, you know, we make a research program, we force, enforce competition uh, law, we make uh, trade deals, uh, we make investment programs, uh, strategies, pulling member states together on 5G security. You know, we're kind of sort of the hands-on part of the European Union. Uh, and then, of course, there's uh, many other important institutions, the European Court, of course, they are very, very important because they are there to keep us all very honest. Now, people know you in the United States, even if they don't realize it. They know you for a very good reason. Prior to this current charge, you were the EU commissioner for competition, fair competition, and others might call antitrust. There's been three Google cases and now a fourth, two Amazon cases, and two more are open, three Apple cases and one Facebook or rather Meta case. Mm -hmm. The fines run into the billions. That's what they've read about. Now, what did these bad boys do that the EU perceived as so wrong? Well, they did a lot of things right because consumers in Europe, they like them. So they grew because you're more than welcome to have success in Europe. So you grow, you become powerful. But then there was kind of a missing link because with power comes responsibility not to misuse your power in the marketplace. And, uh, and that's the thing, because we have seen, you know, case after case after case where businesses sort of were tying services together or promoting themselves uh, in the neighboring markets uh, using their size that they came with in, in sort of the, their main market. So we have seen that in our competition cases. Of course, we can correct sort of market by market, but we've also seen that it tends to be a systemic thing that the relationship between power and responsibility is too weak. So we cannot just do with sort of enforcing competition law case by case. We need more. And this is why we have tabled and, and I in the process of agreeing on, uh, on two pieces of legislation called the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act. Now, before we go on to them, are you saying that when it's a successful service or a product or some kind of business entity, if it gets so large, it's pushing out competition is pushing out smaller people just by its very size. Is that a concern? Is that where we're going with this? Well, you actually know, not necessarily, because you can be good uh, and strong and, and showing sort of the necessary restraint. Uh, in Europe, we have no sort of monopoly ban. So you can grow into being really, really big, but you cannot grow into misusing your size. So, you know, saying, no, no, I, I promote myself because I can. No, I say to these uh, people that if they want one thing, then they should take another thing from me as well. Or in this marketplace, you little guy, you're producing data as well, but I don't give them to you. I take them and I use them for my own purposes. That kind of behavior, you know, how to be a smaller business and actually make it in a marketplace if that marketplace is not open, fair and contestable. And then in the end, we as consumers are losing out. 
Also because who wants to invest in innovation in a smaller company if they depend on someone else to get to the market? It should depend on their ideas and their work ethics and their access to funding and not if some big guy think that they should get to the market or not. Now, there are two EU acts, which you've just mentioned, which are moving forward. One is the DMA, the Digital Marketing Act, and one is the DSA, the Digital Services Act. What are they and what's the difference? Well, the Digital Markets Act should make sure that markets are open and contestable by telling uh, businesses that are so big that they can be considered basically to keep the gate of the market, that they need to show restraint so that the market is open for any other business as well. And the Digital Services Act will tell also big companies, but also smaller companies, how to deliver their services in a way so that what is illegal offline is also treated and seen as illegal when online, uh, while preserving uh, freedom of speech. And that's not only about you know a post, it's also about products, so that when you buy things uh, online, you know that it lives up to the same criteria as if you go into a toy store on, on Main Street. Uh, because here, you know, you'll come back and you can say, oh, come on, this doesn't work. Or I read that there is something in it that's not healthy for my kids. You want also that facility when you shop online. So it's it's basically to say that, that what we have agreed and discussed in our democracy for, for decades, well, actually, that should also be reality in the digital world. Now, you mentioned the term gatekeeper. What is a gatekeeper? I tell you, it's a big company uh, because we're talking about gigantic uh, market caps and uh, and a lot of monthly users. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, almost, I think, 45,000 uh, of those within sort of the core platform services uh, that you're delivering. So we're talking about really, really big businesses. Right now, we don't know how they will be. Uh, probably some U.S., maybe a couple of Chinese, maybe a couple of Europeans. But what is characteristic for a gatekeeper is that they have a lot of market power, a lot of it. Now, we did mention uh, penalties earlier in the billions, uh, and these fines are significant when you're in the billions. I don't care who you are. How are the fines arrived at? Well, first and foremost, they, they reflect what you have done and for how long you have done it. So uh, if you look at, at the Google cases, you know, it can be up to 10% uh, of your turnover globally in the relevant market. And then it depends for how long uh, have your illegal behavior uh, been ongoing? Uh, how was the scope? Was it, a, was it really a, an a really serious uh, thing that you did. So a lot of, uh, uh, of other businesses, customers were affected. And of course, if you come back a second time with something that you have done before or done something similar before, of course, uh, it gets more serious for you. Then the fines, they, they grow quite dramatically uh, if, uh, if you're a recidivist. So, uh, so we put these different parameters uh, into our sort of Google uh, not Google, uh, fine uh, calculating machine, and then we turn the handle. Well, I was going to say, you can't go over 10 times. 
<laughs> it's like 10% times 10 is 100. But uh, when you say turnover, are you referring to like your gross revenues, your gross income? Is that the... No, we're, talk we're talking about turnover in the relevant market. And that means that if you're a big business, you will be in many, many markets. So if you look at a turnover for, for one of, uh, of the big tech companies, which is counted, you know, in, in, in numbers that are so big that they can hardly be understood, is not those enormous numbers that we're talking about. We're talking, for instance, in the Google Shopping case, well, the market is shopping comparison services. And that is only a fraction of the market that Google is in in total. So we're really careful uh, also because when we start a case, we need to see what market is concerned here. Is it more than one market? Because in that sort of definition of where do we see problems also lies the beginning to the calculation of the fine if we get to a situation where we can prove uh, that there has been uh, some illegality uh, ongoing. Now, the DSA, the uh, Digital Service Act, has often been referred to as making the Internet safe for consumers. Where does the harm caused by disinformation run into the ideal of preserving freedom of expression? Well, in, in, in European countries, and actually I think the same goes here in, in the U.S. where I'm right now, uh, there are things that we have agreed are not legal. It's not uh, legal to, to excite to violence. Uh, it's not legal to share bomb recipes. It's not legal to recruit to terrorism. Uh, hate speech uh, is illegal. Um, and of course, there are gray zones. And, and this is why we're really careful to say, well, if we say in the Digital Services Act, you need a system so if some trusted uh, flagger flags to you that this, is, this should not be seen, this is illegal, you should take it down, the one who has his post taken down can complain about it, saying, well, you know, you may be hurt by what I'm saying, but it's not illegal. And then to have a chance to have it put up again. And I think that's the important balance, that you can actually say, well, you can complain about things. You're not being censored. Uh, you have a right to say what you want to say as long as it's legal, even if people are being hurt. I understand there is to be, or there is, a ban on data collection for the purpose of targeted advertising unless there's effective consent. What's effective consent? Well, um, it's, it's not what you, what you see right now. Uh, because very often what you see right now when you consent is a very attractive, uh, you know, uh, green button, and then another button that seems basically out of function. And when you, if you then dare to try to click it, then you get to a really, really murky place with a lot of little sliders uh, that can go from one direction or another, and you don't really know if it's light blue that is on or dark blue that is on. So effective consent means that consumers should be able to see what it is what it is actually that I say yes to. Because every one of us, we say yes to so many things on a daily basis without having a fair chance uh, of knowing what it is because we don't have the hours of the day to read uh, all these uh, terms and conditions. 
And the reason why we do this is that for many businesses, targeted advertising is really a good thing because they have small budgets. So for them, you know, to be able to target potential customers really makes sense. But for customers who say, I'm, I'm fine with general advertising, I, I don't want it to be targeted towards me. Then here, there is an effective way to say, no, I don't want the targeted advertising. Of course, if you're on a site that is financed by advertising, you'll see advertising, only it will not be targeted uh, towards you. And then we have another discussion about minors because we don't want minors uh, to have targeted advertising at all. Uh, so right now we're discussing a specific part of this Digital Services Act for uh, minors to have better protection uh, when online. I think many people are also concerned about AI, artificial intelligence, machine learning. It's very mysterious. We don't know what it knows and what it's doing. Uh, and when we met in Austin at South by Southwest, you mentioned that there was a push for another act, this one focusing on artificial intelligence. How does the EU propose or how are the discussions going to monitor AI? What are appropriate societal limits for the use of AI? For, for us, uh, and also for me personally, the limits is in the fundamentals what we believe in, that there should be equal treatment, that there should not be uh, discrimination, that we should have equal opportunities. So what we are aiming at uh, would be use cases of AI, where there may be a risk of the AI having a bias, an unwanted bias. That may be, I don't know, 10, 15% uh, of use cases of, uh, of artificial intelligence. And if we make that distinction between situations where something fundamental is at stake, something that's really important for us, and then all the rest, then, you know, we leave plenty of room for innovation and convenience and so many other, other things, while at the same time creating the trust that we can use this technology for what is fun and effective and convenient because we're in control of the situations where where people might uh, face the risk of otherwise being discriminated because of their uh, gender or color or religion or postal code. Right away, the idea that you would declare how you're using AI is a great start because right now you can use anything any way you want. No one even needs to know it. But, and then as you start to break that down, we are always uh, concerned with people who violate it. How can we possibly track uh, problems with AI as it's being implemented? We, we already have, you know, quite uh, a lot of legislation saying, for instance, that a, a doll should be safe uh, for kids to play with. And those who would you know, check if if uh, the plastic that the doll is made of doesn't concern anything that is harmful for the child. They would also uh, deal with uh, embedded artificial intelligence in that doll so that they know that it's safe to play with. It may be a doll that would be excellent for children to, to learn a new language or for, uh, you know, 
just to have fun and to play with, but that the artificial intelligence would not learn uh, to get them to do things that they were not supposed to do. So all those who do sort of products uh, assessments, uh, they would figure out how to relate to artificial intelligence as well. And and then the transparency when we're dealing with artificial intelligence that we know of it. You know, I think most of us think, oh, it's actually quite convenient with sort of a, a bot uh, to help us if we have a customer complaint or something like that. But it's just good to know that you're dealing with the machine. Then, then you get a different relationship with technology than what you would otherwise have had. With respect to the current digital space in the EU, has the Russian invasion of Ukraine caused any changes in the digital space and or its regulations? Uh, yeah, um, the, it's, uh, it's a dreadful and sad and, and scary situation. Um, and, and quite a lot of things are, are have a digital side here. Um, for instance, we saw early on how the Russian-controlled state media was used to, you know, outright propaganda. So as part of the sanctions, uh, we made uh, Russia Today and Sputnik uh, not accessible, uh, also not in digital. And the app stores, uh, they closed the app stores for the apps for, for those two outlets. Uh, Everyone is on their toes for cybersecurity uh, to make sure that we're well protected, uh, both helping out the Ukrainians, uh, but also in Europe, of course. Uh, and then, of course, we see a lot of, uh, of misinformation that is spreading globally uh, because the, the Russian invasion and, and the war is destroying uh, the spring work in the fields. Uh, we see uh, people in their tractors being attacked. We see the silos of, of, uh, of seed to be sown being attacked. Uh, so the harvest, harvest uh, may be uh, ruins, uh, or at least delayed. Uh, and we see ships that were ready to go with wheat uh, being blocked. And, uh, and yet, you know, um, in social media, it's being pushed uh, that the Europeans uh, basically uh, or de facto started uh, this war uh, and that we don't care uh, that people may not have uh, food uh, to eat. So you, you see how, you know, the physical reality on ground combined uh, with uh, misinformation via social media can create a really, really dangerous situation uh, where people have, you know, a completely wrong idea as to why they are in a situation of food scarcity, uh, which obviously can create uh, a lot of panic. So, so obviously we need to counteract this, both to make sure that people actually do have uh, the food that they need but also to make sure that uh, they get the other side of this story, uh, that this is a Russian invasion uh, in a country that wanted nothing else but to be there as a free, independent country shaping uh, their own future. Well, Margareta, Madam Executive Vice President, thank you so much for joining us. You know you're always welcome on Tech Nation. Well, it, it was my pleasure talking to you, indeed, because, uh, because these are issues that, that is about people. 
you know, my title says making Europe fit for the digital age. But the point of that is actually to make sure that technology is a tool to make our societies a better home for people. Margreta Vestager is the executive vice president of the European Commission for a Europe fit for the digital age and also the EU commissioner for competition. She represents the nation of Denmark. You're listening to Tech Nation. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, Pandora, and Alexa, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, David George Haskell tells us about the sounds of planet Earth from before there were living organisms right up to the sounds of the city. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, David George Haskell is a professor of biology and environmental studies at the University of the South and has a long and lasting relationship with trees and nature in general. He's here today with sounds wild and broken, sonic marvels, evolution's creativity, and the crisis of sensory extinction. Well, David, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you, Moira. It's great to be with you. While we're going to be talking about sounds, lots of sounds, sounds attenuate, they die out. How is it possible we could have evidence of sounds which existed on Earth well before we humans and our technology even existed? Yeah, you raise an interesting point because it's only in the last hundred years that we've had any form of recorded sounds. Imagine what language and music was like when all sound was ephemeral, was of the moment. That would we live in, in, a, in a strange, strange time where sound can be can be quite literally fossilized onto into digital files or onto pages of a book. More generally, though, we can look at, at real fossils in the earth to infer the past of the history of sound. Uh, look for little devices on the wings of crickets or evidence from singing structures in in the throats of frogs or in the chests of birds to uh, to, to infer 
who was singing, what they might have been singing, and when. The other source of information are evolutionary trees by tracing the pedigree, for example, of all modern birds have a particular structure in their chest, the syrinx that allows them to sing. It's a reasonable assumption that their ancestors would have done so as well. So we can trace things back to common ancestors from what we know about evolutionary trees and uh, get our ears back into the past, listening uh, beyond what would seem possible. Now, let's get some basic definitions here. What is the difference between sonic and auditory? Well, auditory refers to the experience. So we have auditory experience that, it, that is evoked by sound waves coming through our, in, through our outer, middle, and inner ears and then passing through lots of pathways in our brains and manifesting in consciousness. You can have an auditory experience, though, uh, through hallucination or through memory. Imagine the sound of a frog singing or the, or the sound of a loved one saying hello. That's also an auditory experience is coming from within. The sonic is, refers to sound and sound waves have many forms. They're all essentially vibrations in matter. We're, we humans are most comfortable about thinking about sound in air because that's how we communicate. But Sound also transmits through water and through solids and even through the, the matter that existed before gases and solid atoms and liquid molecules, the plasma, the hot plasma of the early universe, which was a mire of protons and, and electrons. There were sound waves even then. So in a sense, then the auditory is a at least those things that we hear, not that we envision or imagine, or uh, what, what would you say if you have an, a sensory experience <laughs> internal to yourself? Um, if you have that, that's sort of a subset of all the waves around you, but they're just the ones you could hear. Yes, and they're also the ones that your brain will pay attention to. And, and we hear, compared to many other animals, we hear fairly limited range Pigeons and elephants can hear much lower frequencies than we can. They can hear rumbles over the horizon that, that we just don't perceive. And then cats and dogs and even more so bats and many insects can hear at much higher frequencies than we can. But every creature lives within a particular narrow range of perceptual abilities and misses out on everything else. The same is true for light. Uh, the same is true for chemical reception. Of course, every mode of Sensory perception has its own biases, but ours is, is a limited range. And one of the marvels, I think, of studying biology and other species is we come to cast our imagination into the worlds of other beings. So an expanded sense of reality through what we have learned from science and natural history and, and cultural investigations, we can then use to, to cast our thoughts into the perceptual realities of other beings, even though we can never truly be an insect or an orca or a bird, we can certainly uh, strive to, to, to get somewhat within that experience. So when I dropped that big cast iron pot in my kitchen the other day, I could certainly hear it, but it may have sent out all kinds of waves that other beings within my house, perhaps very tiny, <laughs> and other beings within reach could hear with their auditory apparatus. Yes, you know, and that's an interesting example because dropping a pan like that, a big pot, would make 
a lot, quite a bit of ultrasonic sound. So if you have any bats roosting in the cavities of your wall or your cat, for example, I mean, we hear up to, at, at the very best, 20,000 hertz, so 20 kilohertz. Cats can hear up to 50, 60, 70, and so the cats are hearing what we would call ultrasound. But also that big thump on the kitchen floor would have sent sound waves down into the ground and any moles, you probably don't have forest elephants dwelling around you, but if no, there were no. some, <laughs> they could hear it through, through their feet. Uh, and many, many insects, this is one of the remarkable things we've discovered just in the last few decades, many insects perceive sonic vibrations coming through solid matter through their legs, through vibration sensors in the joints, in their, their appendages, uh, some in, in their antennae and their, their exoskeleton. So that vibrational signal would have gone down into the tile or the wood or the concrete and zipped along much, much faster than sound in air. And any insects around would, would have realized what, what had happened. In reading your book, I also was sort of shocked in the sense that I hadn't thought about it this way, is what were the, the sounds of Earth before organic life developed, and then what happened after that? Let's go there. So the sounds of Earth uh, before organic matter evolved are still accessible to us here today. If you go to a rocky seashore or listen to the wind blowing against snow or, or sand, any of those, those physical sounds of the motion of, of liquid, whether it's waves or solid geologic tre trembles or things in the air like cracks of thunder or the sound of rain, those existed billions of years ago before any life forms evolved. And, and they're still accessible to us now in a way that most other senses don't, don't give us. For example, you can go and look at a fossil of an ancient creature or look at a rock from a long time ago, but you can't be in that place. Uh, you can't smell it, you can't uh, have the visual signals as the, exactly as they were. But for sound, we can get transported to this primal earth just by paying attention to the places where the sounds of, of life are not particularly dominant. Then, the, the, the crazy thing about life was, so life evolved and then it took billions of years for the first communicative sounds to emerge, even hundreds of millions of years after the first complex animals arrived on Earth. And so evolution produced complex eyes and limbs and bodies and life cycles. But as far as we know, no communicative sound. And how do we know that? Well, the fossils of that time don't seem to have any sound-making devices on them the way, say, if you look at modern lobsters and crabs and some insects on land, they have little ridges and files and plectrums that they use to strum and make all sorts of buzzing sounds and hums and thrums. And, and in some cases, beautiful, pure whistled tones. The fossil evidence is completely lacking any of that until about 270 million years ago. Now, there may have been singers in those ancient oceans that we haven't yet discovered fossils from, and there may have been ways of making sound that don't fossilize. For example, some fish may have used their swim bladders and, and muscles attached to the swim bladder to make humming, thrumming sounds the way some modern fish do. Uh, but it seems from, but from studies of the fossil record and the pedigrees of singing, modern singing fish, uh, that, that for a long time there were no communities 
communicative sounds. The first forests, for example. Well, if we were transported back then, we'd recognize some tall fern-like plants and we might recognize the smell of a swampy forest. But what a strange place because there are no singing birds, no trilling insects, no chirping crickets in the undergrowth. It was, it was a place dominated just by the sound of wind and rain in vegetation. Which brings me to playing an audio clip, which you kindly have sent us. Uh, let's listen. And then if you'll tell us where you recorded it and what is it, it would be great. So let's listen now. So what we heard was the sounds of the Amazon rainforest waking up in the morning. This is a sound recording from up in the tree canopy at the Tipitini Biodiversity Research Station, a recording made just after dawn. And we hear the many, many layers of sound, the insects waking up as the sun first warms them, the, the macaws and the toucans and other birds all waking up and crying out to one another. Monkeys, there are nine different species of, of wild primate in these forests. One hectare of forests can have 60,000 different species of insect. So this is the most biodiverse place we know of on the, on the face of the earth. And that biodiversity is reflected in the extraordinary sounds uh, that, that, that arise from the forest, not just at dawn. Dawn is a particularly noisy time, uh, but throughout the day. And the, the many hours and minutes of the day are divided into segments by the different singing creatures that each have their place uh, in, this, in this beautiful uh, exaltation of sound that we hear from the forest. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is David George Haskell. Dr. Haskell is a professor of biology and environmental studies at the University of the South. You might know him from his earlier books, including his 2017 book, the Songs of Trees, in which he spent years repeatedly visiting a dozen trees around the world to explore connections between people, trees, microbes, and other plants and animals. He's here today with Sounds Wild and Broken, Sonic Marvels, Evolution's Creativity, and the Crisis of Sensory Extinction. Well, 12 trees, do you still visit them today, David? I have visited some of them indeed. Now, of course, the, the uh, pandemic has, has uh, shut down a, a lot of travel, but um, when I'm in New York to visit family or to, to, to visit friends there, I, I visit the tree that, that over many years, it's a tree up on the Upper West Side, an ordinary street tree, a calorie pear, right next to a subway stop. And over many years, I returned again and again to that tree just to stand there, to listen to the tree, to talk to people in the neighborhood, to watch how the tree was affecting the, the, the how the, na the, the, the life in the neighborhood unfolded. And so I've come to know this tree in, as, in a strange way, sort of like a friend, some, uh, a, a person that has a particular personality, set of characteristics, uh, and that through many repeated interactions, each one of which is maybe fairly insignificant, I've come to know and so, yes, I take great, great delight in going back to these trees. Others, there's one, an olive tree outside the gates of the old city of Jerusalem. There's another tree up in the boreal forest of Canada, one in the Amazon rainforest. These are trees that I have not visited now for several years. And I, I wonder 
how they're doing. And when people travel to those places, I ask them to, uh, to check out and say hello to those trees. Because the trees became little portals into the life of each place. And the, the tree, and my main claim in the book is that trees aren't individuals. Trees are living communities, and, and people are part of the tree's living community. And so the tree is a way of getting into the nature of that community, coming to befriend a place, coming to know a place a little more. So when you say listening to the tree, I know you walk up and say, hi, it's me, David, I'm back, something like that. I don't know what you do. But do you touch it? Do you just stand there and commune with it? What do you do? <laughs> yeah, I stand there and listen. So I think commune is too grand a, a word uh, for what I'm doing there. But literally listening to the tree, because, of course, the sound of wind and rain and the tree's leaves reveals the architecture of the tree. An olive tree sounds very different from a spruce tree that sounds radically different from a, from a pear tree. So the sound of the tree actually reveals some things that our, our eyes cannot perceive how it's moving in the wind, how it resists the physical and interacts with the physical forces around it. You mentioned touching the tree, and I do do that, and partly because it's just great fun to, to feel the texture of the bark and to understand the, the tree through, the, through my fingertips. But also a lot of sounds in trees are running through the wood and don't actually really come out into the air much at all. For example, the tree in New York City had a subway line underneath it, Every time a subway train came past, I could feel the vibration of that subway train in the bark of the tree. The tree was actually being shaken uh, by the force of, of mass transit going past, and the same thing with big trucks driving. And those vibrations changed the internal structure of the tree. Trees that are shaken in that way grow more wood. They grow stronger wood. So the sound of the city has been incorporated into the very structure of the tree itself. And then I listened by attaching little sensors to the tree to hear the ultrasound and the vibrations, but also listened by talking to people, people who maybe are setting up market stalls under the tree because it's a nice shady spot where people like to hang out, or just standing and observing how people move around the tree in cities. It's amazing. A tree changes the choreography of the street because a tree creates a patch of cool shade. It also blocks the flow of pedestrian traffic. So if you want to just hang out and talk on the phone or chat with your friend or, or pull your kid aside to tie up their shoelace, whatever it is, you need a little space, the tree offers that space to you. City sidewalks that have no trees are just like rushing river rapids. If you stop, you're going to get mowed over. City sidewalks with trees along the side like a fast-moving river, but with little pools and eddies on the side. So there's more possibility for interaction. So trees and cities actually change the social dynamic of humans. And humans, of course, then give life back to the trees because we're the ones in cities that plant them and, and care for them. So there's a beautiful reciprocity there. Another area that is so interesting to me is this relationship between our hearing mechanisms and our speaking mechanisms and how they evolved over time. Yes, there is a unity that ties all different animals and even single-celled creatures together in that we all use the same cellular structure to hear. These are little hairs on the surface of cells uh, called cilia. 
And in the human inner ear, those are arranged in little coils called cochlea that are filled with, with essentially little drops of seawater. So we're still aquatic animals when we listen. Uh, but insects have the same little cilia in the joints of their legs. And single-celled creatures swimming around the pond, they, they have a much cruder sense of hearing than, than ours, uh, but they're also picking up vibrations in, in their environment with these, with these cilia. And so there is a, an ancient unity in, in hearing that I think is rather beautiful. It ties us together with, uh, with other animals. And within the vertebrate animals, that unity is even stronger. So the little coil in our inner ear is descended from fish and and we are terrestrial fish wandering around we figured out how to get rid of our gills and breathe through lungs but our hearing mechanism has adapted to land but by doing so it's taken repurposed the fish inner ear and reworked it a little bit so that it, that it works on land so so humans and and our cousins the many different species of uh, fish in ocean and, and fresh waters here using the same fundamental structure that's also the structure that we use to uh, orient ourselves in space for our sense of balance and for fish it would be their, their sense of motion in in the water in terms of sound production there is also a unity among vertebrate animals the, there's a little patch of the at the joint of the brain and the top of the spinal column that is involved in making regular pulsed motion, say, walking or moving our front limbs around or a fish swimming with its front flippers, that's also, that area is also associated with sound production, whether it's a bird singing, a human talking, a toadfish making its little uh, uh, toadfish uh, bleat-like sounds. They sound like little aquatic lambs down there un under the water in their nests. All of these vertebrate mechanisms of sound production, as diverse as they are, and they're shaped to different habitats by natural selection as they are, they all share an embryological root. And this is for, for, for the experience of hearing and of making music and speaking is one of the great analogies, I think, between human music and the process of evolution. There are themes and there are variations. There's a tension between unity and diversity. That's what we find pleasing in music. That's also how evolution has, has fanned out the tree of life, taking a few fundamental themes and then honing them for, for, different, uh, for different purposes. Of course, with evolution, there is no single composer or, or songwriter the way, the way there is for human music. Uh, it's a much more anarchic process. Every species is, is coming up with, and every network of species is coming up with its own set of innovations. But, and we hear this in sound as well. When we listen to the sounds of the Amazon rainforest waking up, there's no single composer producing those sounds. There's no orchestra at play here because there's no single conductor. Instead, we have multiple aesthetics, multiple forms of music, all emerging at once and then interacting with one another. Some of them compete, some cooperate in, in this glorious uh, grassroots way of filling the world with diversity. We understand the sounds of the city and, and cities have been around for a long time, although they've evolved over time. But what we haven't had until recently is this 
incredible ability to record sound, to replay it as we wish, to create. We we never have to be without some kind of electronic sound, even in our beds at night. Is this affecting us? Do you think it has to? I think. Yes. Well, one thing it does is it opens up new possibility for beauty. So we can dial up wonderful sounds and ways of connecting to other species and other beings uh, at any time. And, and I think that's, a, that's an extraordinary thing. And, and many of our ancestors would have taken great delight in being able to, to do that. Of course, what we lose in that, say, for example, when we're pulling up any kind of music we want, uh, we're losing that, that communal aspect of going to hear a concert together to having a collective experience of being in the presence of ephemeral sounds that live just for a few seconds and then are gone. And, and we heard that as individuals, we heard it collectively, we reacted collectively. There's, a, there's an energy there and a form of being human that is very ancient uh, because humans have been gathering together to make music for tens of thousands of years. So, so there are possibilities for, for of course, expanded creativity and experiences of beauty, but also we potentially, it doesn't need to be this way, um, but potentially can, can lose that connection. The other thing we can lose is the ability or even the desire to listen to non-human voices. We are a species that has turned inward. We listen mostly to our own voices. We don't listen much to the sounds of the crows or the ravens, still less what the crickets chirping from the mulch in the city park might have to tell us, or what the songs of migrating birds have to disclose this year compared to last year, let alone compared to previous generations, the stories that we might receive from our, our ancestors of what they heard in, in their time and how it has changed. And I think for a very powerful species, and humans are undoubtedly very powerful with all our technology and fossil fuels and our and our seemingly bottomless appetite for stuff. Uh, so we're very powerful. And if we're not listening to other beings, that seems a foundation of a ruinous relationship. And we know this in, in human relationships, in a family, if you're not listening to other family members, it's not going to go so well. So we need to listen to one another as people. How much more so do we need to listen to other beings that are on a planet in crisis now with the extinction crisis and climate and environmental injustice, all these things converging now. If we listen to other beings and have a practice of listening, we are gaining information for ourselves individually and collectively that is invulnerable to the algorithms and the mechanisms of propaganda and fake news. The birds are not trying to keep my eye on the screen. The crickets are not trying to sell me something, but they do have important information for me and for all of us, partly as a source of joy and delight. How amazing is it to be in a world where we can listen to these other beings and also as a source of understanding, well, what's broken, what's changing, and what might we do to fix that? Now, you've recorded swamps, caves, jungles, You've recorded cities and subways and modern life and many variations. Where would you like to go that you haven't been? What would you like to record? <laughs> uh, well, you mentioned caves. One of the things I'd love to record is, is music in caves. Uh, so some of the earliest known musical instruments, in fact, the earliest known physical evidence of musical instruments was found 
in the cave deposits of southern Germany. I was lucky enough to visit those caves and hear the resonance of you know, just a single footstep or a finger snap expands and blossoms within this amazingly big cave, Ex extraordinary experience. But I've never heard a flute played within that space. And this is what these first instruments were. They were flutes made from mammoth ivory, flutes made from griffin vulture bones. It would be extraordinary to hear those instruments. And uh, uh, there are recreations of these instruments that have now been made. I commissioned one of those recreations in, in part of the work preparing for, for this book. Um, to hear that played in the space where a similar flute, a very similar flute, was played 40,000 years ago by human ancestors would be an extraordinary uh, moving experience. Uh, you know, the other thing I'm just, I am personally very attracted to strange convergences of sound. Grand Army Plaza in New York City is a great example of this. You've got uh, a huge fountain in the middle of it with, with kids running around the fountain screaming, cars going around the traffic circle in the other direction from the kids, and then a subway line going underneath that, and airplanes going over the top, and migratory birds flying over. So you've got so many convergences of sound all present in one moment. So it's a very rich place for sonic meditation to just be open to the, uh, to the various convergences of sound in the world. And, and I find that openness then leads to curiosity. Why do the birds sound this way? How are the kids' sounds interacting with and inspired by what's happening with the, with the fountain? Uh, so, so any strange convergences like that, I usually find uh, interesting and intriguing. Well, David, marvelous. Let us know wherever you are. We'll come and help you. Thank you. <laughs> Record Maureen. a thing or two. <laughs> and uh, please know you're always welcome on Tech Nation. We just love to have you here. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. My guest today is David George Haskell. Professor Haskell's latest book is Sounds Wild and Broken, Sonic Marvels, Evolution's Creativity, and the Crisis of Sensory Extinction. It's published by Viking. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.